Do you believe that he keeps hope alive? Romans 8 and 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or COVID or the economy or anything else going on in this world? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that love us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Church, he keeps hope alive because he is alive. The reason our hope is living is because we serve an eternal God, a God that is not affected by the things going on in this world. What an amazing God. I want to release the, the youth at this time. I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, that wasn't even in my notes there for Romans 8. Just a little extra. I am grateful that we serve a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am glad that we serve a God that, that you know, no matter what's going on in this world, we still can have hope. Before we get started, just one or two housekeeping notes real fast. A reminder, this Sunday is the last man of war breakfast, which also means this Sunday is casual Sunday. And everybody said amen. amen. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I'm going to get right into this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come before you, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I pray that, as the psalmist David said, that we would hide your word in our heart, that we would not sin against you, O oh God. I pray, reveal to us what sayest the word of God. Let it be a light for us, Lord Jesus. Open our ears to hear the word, our hearts to receive the word, and our mind to understand the word. We give you all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight my title is simply this, The World is Waiting. The World is Waiting. Now stay with me as we go through this because as I read some of this you may wonder what on earth is what I'm saying have anything to do with my title. But I promise if you stay with me it will make sense. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, we read, Therefore I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Church, there is a coming day when we will cast off all the cares and trials of this world. There is a day coming when no longer will we be consumed with fear from the unknown or depressed because we don't have enough money to pay our bills. There is coming a day when the things that we have so earnestly waited for will come to pass. Oh, to be with Jesus. I can't wait for that day. To let go of the pain of this world. But this is not what I've come to talk to you about tonight. You see, in verse 18, when it's read over the pulpit, it's almost always in the context of the things that I just mentioned. 
But the power of what Paul is writing here goes actually much deeper than just sitting around waiting for the return of the Lord. To get the full value of what is being discussed in chapter 8, you actually need to backtrack all the way to Acts chapter 18. And I'm just going to read two verses from chapter 18 in Acts, verses 1 and 2. The rest of the night we're primarily going to spend in Romans 7 and 8. So if you get lost, we're mainly going to be in Romans 7 and Romans 8. But in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, it says this. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And this is what I want you to take note of. Because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. As the first century church began to grow and began to spread, remember it was after the stoning of Stephen when much persecution was coming that the church really began to grow, really began to spread to different regions of the known world. There began to arise some conflict between the new Jewish converts, if you will, and the new Gentile converts. See, it was very normal during the first century church, especially early on, that they would still meet in the temple or in the courtyards around the temple. There was still a shared heritage and custom and culture that was there, even with the new early converts from Judaism to Christianity. Many of the early church were Jews who had converted, but over time there were more and more Gentiles who were also brought in. There began to arise some tension, though, about how to proceed. The Jewish converts wanted to keep the traditions of their fathers. They were demanding that the new Gentiles be circumcised. They were so stuck in their traditions that they were willing to try and force the Gentiles to be subject to the law that Christ came to free them from. The arguments became so bad that in approximately 50 A.D., Claudius Caesar expelled all the Jews from Rome. That's when you know church fight is getting bad when the Caesar has to step in and say, okay, Jews, leave. You, you got to go. You got to get out of Rome. We're afraid of this uprising. You have to leave. So he leaves, but it wouldn't be but one more year later in 51 AD that Claudius was poisoned. And the edict that he made to dispel all the Jews from Rome would end. And over time, those Jews would begin to make their way back to Rome. But imagine their surprise when they come back after one, two, three, depending on the person, years of being gone, back to their church that is now being run by these Gentiles who have converted to Christianity, and these Gentiles have completely gotten rid of the Jewish customs of the time. They got rid of this idea of you have to be circumcised. They got rid of this idea of keeping the Jewish feasts and customs and all these different things. And you can imagine as these Jews who had converted to Christianity come back to their home church, if you will, Tensions begin to rise yet again. And as this tension began to rise and fightings were taking place, we find in 55 AD, this is where Paul writes this letter that we now read in the book of Romans. Paul sees all the fighting going on and it's threatening to destroy the very church that's in Rome. So he needs to address this. He needs to put all of this behind the church. And if you read through the whole book of Romans, he addresses both groups equally. Later in the book of Romans, he talks about how that you can't let your liberty, the fact that you're not bound by the law, to then give you an excuse to just go and sin or to do things intentionally to offend your brother. He gets after those people too. But for tonight, just for a few minutes, I want to focus on how he addresses the Jews 
and their intention to make the Gentiles fall back under Jewish law. So this is where we, we, we're going to pick back up. And Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to start here. Now you have to understand that when Paul spoke, the Jews understand that Paul was a man who was a Jew by birth, a Pharisee by training. So when he spoke about the law, he had some authority. He knew what he was talking about. These Jews who were hearing him speak knew that Paul was someone educated on the law. So in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, this is what it says. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. So we know exactly who he's, who he's referring to here. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no, no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I love that Paul uses this analogy, and he, he does this quite a bit. If you read a lot of his letters, he uses these analogies that are really, really powerful, these illustrations that are powerful. He talks about a wife, that as long as the husband is alive, the wife is beholden by law to that husband. She cannot leave him and marry another, right? But once he dies, the law has been fulfilled, and therefore the law no longer holds her in that covenant, and she is free to marry another, without having broken the law. The illustration that he's making, he'll make it very plain here in a minute, is simply this, that the woman is the church, the bride of Christ. And the man is the sinful nature, the flesh, that Christ became as man and took on the flesh, that when he died, the covenant of the law was then broken, that we could be married to the spirit instead of the letter of the law. You see, listen, the thing that the Jews clung to so hard was the Mosaic law. Why? Why did they cling so hard even after Jesus came, even after Jesus died, was buried and rose again, and this new, this new uh, first century Jewish church was becoming Christian? Why were they still so desperate to hold on to the law? You see, the law for them was a banner. It was the sign that they were God's chosen people, that only they earned God's favor. What they failed to see is that while God's law was perfect, they were not. The law was good, but the Jews had so ingrained in them that their salvation could only be earned by their works under the law, not realizing that they were holding so fast to the very thing that was a death sentence for them. I mean, think about this. They were holding on to this law for dear life because they thought, well, God gave us the law. We're the chosen people. Nobody else. God only loves us. And the truth is, is that law that they were holding on to pronounced a death sentence over them because they could not in their flesh fulfill 
the perfection of the law. And Jesus came and was trying to tell them that, no, I can fulfill the law. And by me fulfilling the law, you hold on to me and not the law. So their identity was, was only in the letter of the law and not in Christ himself. The law was perfect and demanded death. But thank God, and I mean that quite literally, that Jesus paid that price. But unfortunately, the Jews kept disregarding that payment and trying to earn their salvation through their works. Now, this next paragraph that I'm about to read, it may be pointed, and I promise if it offends you, it offended me first. I almost erased it, but God just kept telling me I had to leave it here. You see, someone needs to hear this, that you will never be good enough to earn God's salvation. Stop stressing yourself out by putting on a show. You walk around your daily life with a smile plastered to your face because you can't dare let anyone know that you are broken inside. You are Mr. or Mrs. Christian, which means you must be perfect. But God is simply saying, you are not perfect, but I am. It's easy to look at the Jews and say, why would they try to hold on to the law and traditions when Christ had paid the price? My question is, why do we do the exact same thing? We get so caught up in the traditions of church that we sometimes fail to allow God to break us. We get so caught up in titles and positions and customs and family traditions and God is trying to break us of bad habits and break us of worldly influences within the church, but we know what we're supposed to do in church. We were raised in this thing. And God is saying, you are clinging to those traditions just like the Jews clung to their law. Allow me to break you, to make you more like me. You are not, I am not perfect, but God is Let's go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. Romans chapter 8. Now understanding that Paul was just telling the Jews that they needed to be dead to the law. That they needed to allow their flesh to die out to the law. This is why you have to understand what chapter 7 said before you can understand what verse 1 of chapter 8 says. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, There is therefore now, because you're dead to the law, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walketh not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. It is simply saying this, what man could not do under the law because their flesh was sinful, Christ did under his flesh which was perfect. And now because Christ fulfilled the law in the flesh, we need to follow the law of the Spirit, not of the flesh, which leads to sin and death. Whereas the law brought condemnation because man could not keep the law, the Spirit brings life. The Jews thought they were pleasing God by doing all of the external things, even though their heart wasn't in the right place. 
Again, I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes. But we must be careful that we aren't measuring our walk with God by the external things we do while neglecting the relationship with God. I made this quote many years ago on Facebook, and it popped up, and I shared it again because it's still true. And it was something that, I, that God had to speak to me first. All ministry is work, but not all work is ministry. Sometimes we can be so busy in the church, but not really doing anything in the ministry. We can be so busy in programs and, and ideas and functions and all of these events, but in the sake we are neglecting our very relationship with God. We're so physically busy that we're burnt out and have no, left, no time left for the Spirit. But I'm telling you that ministry must first start here. It must first start in your heart, in your personal relationship, and out of that relationship with God, ministry can flow to other people. So let me say that phrase one more time, that all ministry is work. Because ministry costs you something. It costs you something, both physically and emotionally. But not all work is ministry. Romans, Romans chapter 8, picking up in verse 5. This is why Paul goes on to say this in verse 5. He says, for they that are after the flesh... Do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I can't help but think of the story of, and I, I, always, I always mix names up, so forgive me here. When Mary and Martha, thank you, I just like my name, Mary and Martha are, are with Jesus. And one chooses to be busy doing stuff, right? We would say she was doing ministry, she was running around, she was cleaning while the other realized that the very presence of God was there in the house. So she decided it was more important to sit at the feet of Jesus than to be run around and be busy. See, those who are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. But those who are more concerned with the flesh first worry about minding the things of the flesh. Verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now think about what Paul's saying and who he's saying it to. He's saying that to be in the law is to be in the flesh. And to be in the flesh means it is impossible to please God. He is telling the Jews that as long as you cling to your tradition, you cannot Please, God. Because the law pertained to the flesh. The only way to please God is through the Spirit. In verse 10 it says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now remember the illustration that was used in the beginning of chapter 7, that the bride is bound to her husband, the law, if you will, until he dies. So we all were bound to sin until we accept Christ's death and put on his righteousness. It's his acts that fulfilled the law and brought about grace, not ours. Now see, unfortunately what happens is some will read this or hear this statement and say, see, you can't earn salvation, therefore you just have to accept Christ, just believe, 
and therefore that brings you salvation. You mean nothing, don't have to do anything, just believe Christ and that's it. But they would have to read back a little bit in Romans 6 to the same group of people he already addressed this. Because in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Meaning that you cannot claim to be dead to the law through Christ if you don't first identify with the death of Christ. And the way you identify with the death of Christ, according to Paul, is through baptism. That's how it occurs. The baptism doesn't purchase your salvation. Only God does that. But what you're doing is, is accepting the payment that Christ made for you in obedience to his word. And listen, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, in statistics, which unfortunately I'm taking right now for my master's program, which I hate, by the way, researchers always look at two things. They look at your hypothesis, what you're proposing, but then they also look at what's called the null hypothesis, which is the opposite. So if the scripture here, if you look at it this way, if the scripture is saying, if you've been planted in the likeness of his death, which is through baptism, you can also rise in newness of the spirit, which is the Holy Ghost. You receive the spirit only by identifying with Christ in his death, which is baptism. Well, the, the opposite of that would be, if you don't identify with Christ in his death through baptism, you cannot walk in newness of life through the Spirit. So, so there was no confusion here to these Jews. Paul was very clear to them that if you want the Spirit that I keep talking about, the Spirit that brings life, the Spirit that, that puts away the law, that only comes through obedience to the Word, which tells you you must be buried with Christ in baptism. You cannot be free from the penalty of sin without identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. The only way to do that is repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is what brings us into the family of God. Without the Holy Ghost, you are simply a dead man walking. Right? Because if you are buried with Christ in the baptism, you've been dead, but you've never received that spirit that brings life, you are simply a dead man walking. When you read through the Old Testament, you will find a Jewish people that were more obsessed with their name than they were with their purpose. Let me explain. When the nation of Israel was growing as a people, God told them they were to be a nation of priests. Now the purpose of a priest is to declare the voice of the Lord to the world, not hide it for themselves. But the Jews were so caught up in the promise of being a great nation that they began to demand a king be placed over them. They weren't satisfied with just being a nation of priests. But God was trying to tell them that he is the only true king. And not just the king of Israel, but of the world. The Jews were not called because God hated the world. The Jews were called to bring God to the world. But again, they were more concerned with their worldly kingdom that they forsook God's kingdom. Now imagine that you are a Jew who has grown up your entire life hearing that you are the special people, the chosen people, the people set apart 
And now here comes this, this Jew, who's now a Christian, who's telling you, no, you missed the whole point, the whole thing. That law you cling to makes it impossible for you to please God. That, you, that, that the people of Israel missed the very purpose for why God called them in the first place. Now it's easy for me to beat up on the people of Israel here, but don't worry, I'll bring it to us here in just a moment. Romans chapter 8, picking up now in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? They that are led by the Spirit of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What defines you as a child of God is not your lineage. It's not your Pentecostal pedigree. It's not your education. It's not your economic status. What defines you as a child of God is if you have the Spirit of God living within you. Now let me take it one step further than that. See, verse 14 says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Simply receiving the Holy Ghost and sitting on a pew, never to do anything again, is not enough. The Bible says that the children of God are those who are led by the Spirit. Because the Spirit, as I've said many times before, the same as the love of God interchangeably here, will meet you where you are, but it will never leave you where you are. Being led by the Spirit means that you begin to change and to break off the old things that you were formed under. That sinful nature that held you down as begins to change. It is buried, it is put away, and you allow the Spirit of God to change you, to change your heart. This is why I keep harping on that all work is not ministry, because if you're so busy but you're not changing, you're not being led. Walking this faith means that you are constantly changing. From the most senior person here, and by senior I just mean the longest person who's been in this church, to the new babe who walks through the door, we all must continually be led by the Spirit. We are always undergoing a process of change, of transformation. But why this distinction? Why this distinction of being led by the Spirit? Well, see, now we are getting to the very heart of the matter. We open with verse 18 of this chapter. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now think about that verse and how it's often used in comparison to what actually has been being talked about this entire chapter. About how that they got to put away the law, be dead to the law, but live in the spirit, be led by the spirit. And how he's saying here that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we talked about how we use this verse to look forward to the hope of eternal reward. But sometimes we are guilty of what Paul just told the Jews. See, we meet here on Sundays, we dance and we shout, and those are great things. Do not neglect those things. We hear the title of that, we wear the title of Apostolic Pentecostal proudly. And those are great things, we should. We look at each other as brother and sister, as family, and are content with how things are. But if we read just a little further on in Romans 8, we see where the Spirit is supposed to be leading us. In verse 19, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creature 
waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. Now, if you're like me, I read that, that section. I'm like, what on earth did that really just say? Talking about a creature, talking about some groanings and the expectation. And I had to go back and read it a couple times over. What, what exactly is this passage? What is this telling us? Well, you have to kind of look back and see what these words actually mean. You have to go back and look at some of the original meanings here. The word creature that is used in Greek means creation. More specifically, it means something formed from nothing. In this context, it's referencing mankind, humanity. As, and we just discussed who the sons of God are. We know who that is, those who are led by the Spirit, is anyone who's filled and led by the Spirit. So let's read this again with a little bit of this knowledge here. It says, for the earnest expectation of the creature, that is to say, of mankind, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, we're the sons of God. The word manifestation is defined simply as this, an event, action, or object that clearly shows or embodies something. So mankind is desperately waiting on the sons of God to quit just saying we have the Spirit of God, to quit just saying we have the peace of God, but to begin to make that manifest to the world, to show them, to teach them, to be Christ to a dying and lost world. For the creature, that is humanity, was made subject to vanity here, sin, not willingly. Paul talks about over and over, that which I would do I do not, and that which I not do I do, but no longer is it me, but the sin, right? That, that's making me do this. He's saying that as long as you live in the flesh, you are bound by sin. We have to break free from that by the Spirit. Verse 21 says, because the creature, or humanity itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. Paul was telling the Jews that while you were so busy clinging to your identity in this world that you're missing your very purpose. You were watching a world on the path to destruction, but you were too busy with your status to do anything about it. The world is waiting. This world is crying out in pain. Church, the world is waiting on us. They are waiting for you and for me to be Christ for them. To show them a way more perfect. To be manifest the, the principles of God so that we can also help them be delivered from the corruption, from the bondage of this world. This world is crying out in pain, in desperation. Often that pain is made manifest in anger and hatred. They lash out and attack one another, but the truth is, is that they all, we all are hurting because we are looking for the hope that is only found in Christ. We all want peace. We all want to be happy. We all want joy. But the problem is, is too many in the world are looking in the wrong place. But how will they know where to look if we don't show them? They are having earnest expectation that is only manifest in the sons of God. So this verse 18, which talks about 
that all the suffering is nothing compared to what will be revealed in the sons of God. It's us revealing the hope of Christ to the world. That the things we suffer should be nothing in comparison to the fact that we are bringing salvation to a lost and dying world. That is the joy. That is the thing that we're hoping for. That is the thing that we're clinging on to. Not position, not status, not who can preach at which conference, not who has the most money. But what this world is waiting for is you. Because you are the only Christ that so many will see. They are waiting for the hope that you claim to have. They're waiting for the joy that you say you have. They're waiting for the, the hope of salvation that you say you have. That when everything's going wrong, you still have a smile. They're waiting. Tell me, how can I make that manifest in my very life? Church, as we grow closer and closer to the return of Christ, the pain of this world only will grow stronger and the groanings of this world will be stronger. We often talk about the wickedness of the world and how it will grow stronger, and it will. There will be many who hate Christ. There will be many who already do. But what I'm telling you is that so many who say they hate you, that they hate God, are really just hurting. They've been hurt by members of the church. They've been hurt by family members. They've been hurt by friends. Some have even hurt themselves. But they don't know how to take that hurt and turn it into joy. This is our job. To bring a lost and dying world the hope of Christ. If we say that God keeps hope alive, he does that through his people. You see, the reason the world can say hope can still be alive is because I see you still have hope. Despite all of your circumstance, you still have hope. Despite all of our situations, you still have hope. So God keeps hope alive, but it's through us that he keeps hope alive. Now hopefully you all know my heart. I am not claiming there's this crazy theology out there that says that we are gods. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we are supposed to be the image of God in this world. We are supposed to allow God to work through us. There is only one God, and his name is Jesus. But we are to be the reflection of of that Jesus. Let's all stand. I know tonight may have been a little pointed, and I promise you if, if you felt a little convicted, I felt it a whole lot more. I, I felt God stepping on my own toes, asking me, what am I doing? How am I be manifesting that, that hope to the world? How am I bringing forth this mission to a world that's hurting and dying? So if you feel that conviction, guess what? That's a great thing. Because you see, the difference between conviction and condemnation is this. Satan would love for you to feel condemned, which would, would drive you to quit, to give up, to say all hope is lost. But God is saying hope is alive, and therefore I'm convicting you because I want you to change. The conviction of God is a great thing because it means God is still moving within our lives, and he's drawing us, trying to tell us we need to change. If we could put on a little bit of music in the background, I'm not going to make a big altar call. I'm not going to beg and plead with you to come to the front. I'm just going to ask you to take some inventory within your own life. Is God convicting you personally that you need to be doing more? Is God convicting you that maybe there's someone you know of who you know is hurting 
but you've been too afraid to say anything. You've been too afraid to, to be that vessel of hope to them because what the world might think. I'm asking you just to search your hearts for just a moment as they play some music softly.